I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians and the second chapter. It is a joy and privilege Sunday by Sunday to spill water down your tie (laughs) and to be able to open the word of God together. I hope you greet it with the same sense of anticipation I do. From the very beginning of our Lord's public ministry, he taught his followers that they cannot hide their godliness. Jesus, the true light, came into the world. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, and they sought to extinguish the light. The light, however, could not be extinguished because the true light now lives by the Holy Spirit in his people. And so the light of Christ continues to shine brightly in this world, doesn't it? In the church, which Jesus said is set as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Some years ago, I was asked to participate in a wedding, and it was in Las Vegas, Nevada, of all places. And I remember driving there uh, from the west, kind of heading southeast, going through uh, Death Valley and then, then out through the Mojave Desert. And um, I remember being struck by the silhouette of Mount Charleston as you looked from the back toward the city and how it was framed in the glow of what is Las Vegas, Nevada. I was well over 100 miles away from that city And still I could see the light. And yes, I do realize the contradiction here in my illustration in comparing Sin City to a city set on a hill. I realize, you don't have to tell me later that Vegas is in a valley and not up on a hill. I get it. The only point I'm really trying to make is this, that Las Vegas is just bright, really bright. Did you know that Las Vegas can be seen for almost 300 miles away from from air? They they can take pictures of it from the, the International Space Station. According to NASA, Las Vegas is reputed to be the brightest spot on Earth due to the concentration of lights on its hotels and casinos. Because it is bright, it cannot be concealed. And one of the things that makes Vegas so bright is that it is, it is set in the midst of darkness. The, the, the area around Vegas is just dark and desert. And so it is, beloved, with us that God has appointed us as sons of light and daughters of the day. We are here by God's design in this dark time to shine brightly, to be visible in this world. We have been appointed by God to stand out brightly by the character and the conduct of our lives. It is Christ's light ultimately that cannot be hidden. But I think it's fair to say this, that in your life it can be obscured if you neglect to live in a way that honors the Lord. And it's with that in mind that Paul is writing in the book of Philippians... And he has told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in us, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. God has a purpose for your life, and it is to shine in the darkness. You were saved not merely to go to heaven, but you were saved to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to shine as a light. This is our responsibility. And so Paul continues then in verse 14, by the Spirit, as we'll read together, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life 
so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Father, we ask by your spirit that you would teach us what we need to understand this morning. Apply your word to your people, each one of them. Scratch each itch. Sanctify, Lord, whatever is needing to be made into Christ's likeness. Grow us, we ask through these things. Amen. We have this very succinct, as we said last week, and comprehensive command. Do all things, everything, all things. There is nothing about which we should grumble or dispute. We are not to be grumbling and disputing people. And our text this morning tells us why we're to live a life without grumbling and disputing. More broadly, if you will, why we are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why we should live a life that stands and strives and suffers together for the sake of the gospel in this world. Why we should live as a people who are marked by unity and love and fellowship and affection and compassion and humility. Why we should live a life in the likeness of Christ who gave himself for us in submission to the will of God, no matter the cost. Why we should live a life that's not marked by grumbling and complaining and a discontented heart. We should not live a life that is filled with disputing and arguing and contention. These things are unfitting for the children of God. And our text this morning gives us three clear reasons why we should not grumble and dispute. Number one, you should not grumble or dispute in anything because of what that says about you. For what it says about you. And I want to direct your attention to the first two words of verse 15. You'll note that they are these words, so that. That is one word in the Greek, and it speaks to the reason or the purpose. He's giving further explanation. He's giving us the why behind the what. He wants us to know why we shouldn't grumble, why we shouldn't be argumentative, why we are not characterized by that kind of hard attitude as a Christian. We don't have that sort of posture in this life. That is not our disposition. It's not fitting. It is utterly inconsistent, if you will, with your spiritual bloodlines. You've been born of God. You shouldn't be that way, he says. Look at verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Note that. Children of God. This is what this demonstrates. A life that is free from grumbling and complaining speaks loudly to the fact that you have, in fact, been born of God. You've been changed. Your life is no longer characterized by those things that the world is characterized. Those of whom Paul writes, they're filled with bitterness and cursing. That's not you anymore. You're not wrangling with God, wrestling with God, resisting God. God's people could never be characterized as complaining people, as contentious people, as people who, who are restless at heart and wrestling constantly with God and with others. It's entirely unfitting to have that kind of attitude. The Bible teaches that God's children are grateful people. God's children are contented people. We are a joyful people. The people of this world should be able to look at us both individually and collectively and say, there's a people who are glad there's a people who are unshakably hopeful in this world. They, they, there's something about them that's effervescent, if you will. They, they are a submissive people. They go through hard times like I go through hard times. But their response is entirely different than mine. 
sometimes, I know you've done this just as I've done this. Perhaps you are speaking to your husband or your wife or a friend and you, you will say of someone's children, man, they, they are just chips off the old block. And you can mean that about them physically. It might be that they have red hair and, 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 and a parent has red hair. It might, it might be their gait or their walk. It might be their height. It could be their facial features, all those kinds of things. That certainly is true. But, but it's also true, isn't it, at the level of their character. A lot of times we'll look at children and say, man, they are, they are delightful, happy, enjoyable kids. They're so respectful. And, and you begin really in complimenting those children to say something about their parents, something about their upbringing. We're saying really that, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Now listen, please, don't, don't run with that this morning. I know how tempting it is as a parent. You could just lose it right here and hear nothing left in the message. You, you're just so worried about what your kids are saying about you by the way they live. That isn't the point. The point I'm making is this, is that in a general sense, Children do reflect who their parents are, what their lineage is. And this is just as God designed it, and that's the picture that Paul is painting here. We demonstrate that we are God's children by the attitudes and the behaviors that characterize us. We are called, aren't we, to be like our Heavenly Father. You can keep your finger in Philippians. We'll, we'll be back soon enough. But I want you to go to Matthew 5. where our Lord teaches us this very same thing. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, well, we'll pick up in 43. You've, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That, that was the, the teaching of the time. That was what the, the rabbis were, were adding to the word of God. Love your fellow Jew, hate everybody else. But I say to you, Jesus says, I, these commandments are my commandments. And I, I, he speaks authoritatively here. He says, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. And here's that same so that. Here's further explanation. This is why we do that. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You might prove your spiritual lineage. You see, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the way God is. Even God demonstrates love and kindness to the unbelieving and, and does good to them. He has compassion upon them. And here Jesus reasons with us and he says, for if you love those who love you, big deal. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? The ungodly love those who love them. People who like you on Facebook, you like back, right? What he's saying is, no, no, it's the people the people who come after you on Facebook, what, what's the response of your heart in that? Is it one of love and compassion and prayer? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than, than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? Non-believers greet, greet their family members. That's no great shakes. What makes you different is that you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Don't you remember that it was Jesus who came and he came not for a lovely people. He came for the helpless and the ungodly, for those who were sinners. And yes, he says, while we were enemies, Christ Jesus died for us. We're to be like our Heavenly Father. To summarize, Jesus says you are to be perfect. No problem. You are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We're to be holy as God is holy. And so 
Jesus is making the point, and Paul here is just following in his footsteps when he calls us to, to be like the one who called us. We show ourselves to be his offspring, that we are born anew, that we are born again, that we are born from above, that we are new creatures in Christ by the way we live and by the attitudes that characterize and undergird those actions. We want to be, brothers and sisters, the very spitting image of our Father. And we are called in Ephesians 5.1 to be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what we are. We're loved by God and we're called to be like him. So what do God's children look like? Well, they look like their father, of course. They've been born of him. Increasingly, day by day, more and more, they take on the likeness of their father. Well, what is the father like? Well, Paul tells us, he gives us three characteristics of the father back in Philippians. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be, note this, blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. We are to be blameless. If the father is blameless, it should be reflected in his children that they too are blameless. That word means it's, you're above accusation. You are one who is free from fault. And he's speaking here, uh, of course, that God is perfect in his blamelessness. You and I can never and have never been that in our practical experience. We do, of course, now through faith in Christ stand as blameless in his righteousness. But here he's talking about that blamelessness that actually works itself out into a holy life. He says we're to be, at a human level, we are to be like our Father. We are to be without obvious moral defect. You should live an exemplary life. Remember, it's God who's in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You can do this. You can do this. By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit in your life, you can do this. The Apostle Paul even before he was in Christ, characterized his his life this way. We know he doesn't mean an absolute and utter sinless perfection. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul here is speaking of those things that characterized him. He he was a goody-goody, according to to the Jewish law. He He was one who was really working hard at personal holiness He says in verse 6, describing himself, that he was a zeal. As to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. So this is before he was a believer. He says, as to righteousness which is in the law, found, and here's our word, blameless. What's he saying? That he was sinlessly perfect? No. He was saying, I was outwardly really exemplary. I was outwardly... Uh, flawless. You couldn't have found anything obviously in me that was wayward. I was seeking to live outwardly as to the law of Moses. I, I was there when I should have been there. I didn't leave until well after everybody else had left. I worked and keeping the feasts and I worked at offering the right sacrifices and I sought to memorize the Pentateuch and I did this and I did that. People said, when, when, if you look at Paul, if you looked at any Pharisee, really, you had a tendency to think, man, those people are a cut above. He's simply saying, I lived an outwardly, morally, exemplary life. You know, Paul says this in another place, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be be preserved entirely, and here's our word, without blame at the coming of Christ Jesus. So what's he saying back in Philippians? Simply this. You're going to put off grumbling and disputing because that would be a blemish on your character. 
That would be a blemish on your life. That would obscure the light that you're intended to, to shine. It would mar your testimony. Not only is our father blameless, but, but Paul uses a second word, and all of these are, are related. He's really piling terms on top of terms. He's, he's giving us a series of synonyms. He says we should be innocent. Our father is innocent. That word is interesting. It, it means unmixed, unmingled. It's unalloyed. The, the emphasis really is purity. It's used in metallurgy of, of those who worked in gold and in, in copper, of, of, of melting that, that thing down and taking off the impurities so that it would be unalloyed, it would be unmixed, it would be absolutely pure gold. It's used in medicine back in the day to refer to medication that was effective without side effects. It was very helpful, but it didn't carry with it any mixture of bad for you, physically speaking. Paul uses this term, too, in Romans 16, 19, when he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil. I don't want you to be mixed up with evil at all. I want you to lead a, a pure life. There's no mixture in you of good and evil, no compromise, no hypocrisy. You're not blessing God and being thankful and rejoicing in the Lord one day and filled with bitterness and cursing the next. No, you're unalloyed. You're unmixed. James Boyce described this term this way. He said, quote, there is to be nothing that gives occasion for scandal. Nobody should go home talking about you in ways that are unfitting of a child of God. We're to be fixed and determined to not be a mixture of grumbling and thanksgiving. No, I'm determined in my heart by the grace of God to put all of that grumbling and disputing stuff off in every circumstance and instead to replace it in everything, as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, give thanks, to rejoice not sometimes and grumble others, but rejoice always, and again I say, rejoice. Unmixed. There's a third term here, and that is above reproach. And this is very, very close to the word blameless up above. Uh, oftentimes, this word is actually translated blameless. Listen to it. Ephesians 1.4. God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world for this purpose, that we would be holy, and here's our word, blameless, above reproach, before him. Ephesians 5.27 Christ cleansed his bride so that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, none. No such thing. But that she would be holy, and here's our word again, blameless. Jude 24, we will be presented in the end, what? Blameless with great joy. Do you hear the eternal purpose in all of that? God saved you. He saved you from something. And not just judgment. He saved you from sin and he is seeking to purify for himself a people who will live to declare his excellencies by the beauty of their character and their conduct and all the motivations that drive all of that. That's what God wants from us. This is what he wants in your life. Now it's not till heaven that we're going to see these things perfectly realized but we should see growth in them in our lives, and we should see them evidenced in our lives even now. There should be a, a determination in our heart to pursue these things. And beloved, I, ho I hope you can, just as you hear those terms, you can, you, can, you can understand that these things are, everything the world is not, the world is not pure in any way, shape, or form. And here's what I, I, I want, if we can just pull over for a second, I want to lodge in our heads yet again. And I have said this to you many times, but it is no trouble for me to remind you of these very things. Listen, we have got to get it out of our head that, to way, that, the, that the way of really making an impact for the name of Christ 
is somehow to ease the offense and to smooth things over, to become like the world in our attempt to win the world is exactly backwards. Do you see that? It is our differences, our distinctives as God's children that separate us out and then make us to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. I don't know how to find two things that contrast more than light and darkness. They're, they're at utterly opposite ends of the spectrum. And light, when it shines, always pierces and dispels darkness. It, it, it causes a flashpoint. And so we've got to anchor this in our head that it's not our likeness to the world that wins the world. It is our distinctiveness from the world. It's so antithetical to the way much of the world, much of the, much of the church, I should say, in our day seeks to reach the lost. We, we want to look like them. We want to sound like them. We want them to be comfortable. We want, the, we want them to not, we're just going to ease them in. We're going to grease the skids so that they can slide into the kingdom of heaven as though, as though they don't have to confront sin, as though they don't need to repent. I've said this to you before and I'll say it again. People should come into this, the unsaved should come into our gathering and say, this people is odd. They are weird ducks, delightfully so, wonderfully sort of freakish, I don't get what they're doing, but man, are they doing it. And I'd like to know more. The church has it all backwards here, broadly speaking again, at least in America. We're not Disneyland, and we're not the local bar. People can feel comfortable there. When they come here, it should be unique. And the goal of so many churches today is to blur the distinctions and to, to tone down all the differences and, and to show the world that we as Christians can have fun too. We drink good coffee too. We have comfortable theater seating for you too. We'll approach you casually and and at ease, and we, we can just sort of share a discussion about Jesus because Jesus is cool too. Beloved, we do not want to convey to people that we are just like them with a little Jesus, and I do mean little Jesus, sprinkled on top. What we want to demonstrate in our lives is that Jesus is great, and the gospel is the answer, and that that Gospel saves you. It rescues you. That grace of God in you works in you to convert you and make you radically and wonderfully different into the very likeness of Jesus himself. In keeping with Paul's illustration here, I, I, I could put it this way, that, that we are, get this, lights in the darkness, not lamps. You understand the difference between the two? You can put a lamp in a dark room and not even know it's there. That's not what you've been called to be. That's not what you are. You actually practically are illuminating this world for Christ. And so Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now why? Because it demonstrates that we're God's children. We're like him. We're blameless. We're innocent. We're above reproach. And this is what a contented and grateful and peaceable frame demonstrates in us, that we are his and that we've been changed and we're being made into his likeness. So we, we put off grumbling and disputing because of what it says about us. Also, secondly, we put off grumbling and disputing because of what it says to the world. Paul says, don't grumble or dispute in anything so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, note this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. 
I don't need to convince you that this world is crooked and perverse. It is no secret to you that this world is full of complaining and grumbling and disputing. Last week we saw that Paul took that language of of a crooked and perverse generation from Deuteronomy 32.5 and he was thinking back to that, that generation that died in the wilderness because they were perpetually grumbling against God. They were, they were a rebellious people who would not follow God, who would not trust God, who would not believe in God. They challenged him at all points. He uses it here to describe more broadly the people of the world, the sinners who are opposed to God, set against him, defiant and rebellious grumblers and disputers. And this is what we must realize is that there is cosmic significance to to our hard attitude and our unwillingness to give in to a life of complaining and bitterness and disputing. It really matters what our attitudes are. Your testimony for Christ is bound up in what you do and in what you don't do. And so it is with your speech. Your testimony for Christ is bound up in what you say and what you refrain from saying. And Paul's going to talk about both right here. He says, look, you you live in this very black, ink black, jet black, India black, black world. It's not a sort of okay, there are a few things wrong, there's a a little fly in the ointment. No, it stinks and it's, and it's as black as it can be. It is a surrounding desert around a shining city. It's under condemnation. And God has placed you and me as lights in this world. And so he says, look, beloved, you are children of God. You are that. And you're to live above reproach in the midst, in the midst. You're to be in the midst. Not taking your light and covering it over with a, with a bushel. You're not throwing a hefty bag over the thing to, 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 to hide in this world, hoping to sort of covertly slink through until Jesus comes to receive you to himself. No, it's light on, full bore, turn up the dimmer. We're to be shining brightly in this world, this crooked and perverse generation. We live in their midst. We're not like them, but we are among them. And he says, you appear then as lights in the world. So God saved you to give you a testimony. Just flip back a page or two and go to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read from the first verse just to give you, again, a reminder, the gist of this. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's what we're to do. Why? Because we're beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, For you were formerly darkness. He did not say you were formerly in darkness. He says, no, you formerly were the very embodiment of darkness. You were a child of the devil, serving the devil, unbeknownst to you perhaps, but that is what the Bible teaches. You were in fact dark and dead. But, but now, you are, again, not in the light, but you are light In the Lord, walk then as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's our posture. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, as a light, what? You even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. And she failed. Jesus then comes. And he fulfills all that Israel failed to do. And he he does it declaring, I am the light of the world. You know that passage. That's back in Matthew 5. I'll just read it to you, or you can turn there. Matthew 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Do you see what just happened? He is the light of the world. He is the true light who comes into the world. But now he looks at us and he says to his church, he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a, a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine. There's the directive. Before men, again, we're among this world. We let it shine in the midst of this world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Let that light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, all of these texts make very plain that we have an evangelistic mandate, don't we? We have been called to be billboards for Christ. Everyone who drives by on life's highway should look to your billboard and see plastered across your life attitudes that reflect Christ and actions that reflect Christ. This is what Paul means when he says you appear as lights in the world. The word, the language here, the actual words that are used really convey the idea of lights in the night sky. It's a word that's used to refer to the sun and the moon and the stars um, as they shine in the sky. That's what Paul is saying. You, You always wanted to be a superstar? Guess what? You are a star. You are you are a luminary in God's God's uh, hand, and he's, he's put you forth. He's, he's strewn you out across this dark world that we might bear light in that darkness. One commentator put it this way, and I, I love it. He says, we are the very radiance of God in this world. And again, not to belabor the point, but when he says, among whom you appear as lights, he's stating a fact I think we tend to hear that and say, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, then then I'll shine as a light for Jesus. No, what he's saying is, you are a light for Jesus. You have the light of life in you. And the thing is, you are to let it so shine before men by performing good works. That's the question, how brightly are you shining? And beloved, you you know this as well as I do. These are very, very dark days in this nation. There's not a day that doesn't go by and I'm encountering something that makes me go, what happened to the country I knew? Every one of us feels the weight of it, particularly if you're over the age of 20. These are days that are characterized by unthinkable depravity. By the grace of God, there are things being done in this day that we encounter that we go, man, I've never even thought of that. Who thinks like that? Who murders somebody like that? Who uses their body and and the glorious gift of sex like that? Who invents that kind of wickedness, that kind of evil? There is foolishness just absolutely running rampant in this country, and it's important for us to understand that this this is not a sign that 
we are headed for judgment. You understand this? This is not a sign that we are headed for judgment. This is clear evidence that this country is under the judgment of God, who gives a country over to this and to that and to the next thing in an attempt to, to shake it. And we're way down the list. You go read through Romans 1, 18 and following, and you will see that just step by step by step, there is a, a descending spiral as we go to a wretched end. All the sexual insanity, all the gender nonsense, all the rebellion against authority, all the high-minded, anti-God, intellectual, uh, shaking your fist and, and saying, you know what, we're basically good. We don't need authority. All the abortion, all the anti-family bent, all the denial of evil, the forgetfulness of God, the just reckless running to the, the next line that we can cross over. It, all of this is, is evidence that for the last 60 or 70 years, we have been running headlong down this path. The question is, beloved, how do we respond to it? How do you respond to it as an individual? How do we respond to it as a church? And this does concern me because I know it in my own heart. The nation is under judgment. You are not, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're on the ship, but you are precious in the eyes of God and he has placed you. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but again, Paul does it, I can do it. So <laughs> he has placed you as a light in the sky. He has placed you as a light in the darkness. He has put you on the Titanic to, 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 to give hope and to show that there is still a way out of this mess. And the easy fleshly response is, is simply to, to join in the grumbling and the, and, and the moaning and the disputing and the griping, to, to spend your days sort of running in your mind, angry thoughts, condemning and criticizing those who are blind and deaf, those who have not received the grace of God in the same way that you have you can mock them and you can murmur and you can complain and you can debate and you can dispute and you can get all stirred up and, and be anxious and angry like the rest. Or we can lay hold of God's promise for us in this day that he is sufficient to sustain us and to cause us to shine brightly that we might live lives really that are above all of that we have a responsibility, brother and sister, not to get caught up in all of that and not to live in, in the midst of this world in the same way that most people do. We can live a contented life. We can rejoice in all things. We can give thanks in all things. We can be peaceful in the midst of all that is un, uh, all that is warlike and and, and we can have, we, we can live on the straight and narrow in the midst of the crooked and the perverse. And just by virtue of our Christ-like lives, which of course are characterized, yes, in all kinds of righteousness, and in the likeness of Christ who had compassion on this dark world, We can shine like light in the world because, because we, we, we can be characterized by love and by joy and by a resilient hope and by peace and by gladness. I put it to my wife last week. It's almost as, as if Paul is saying, look, when, when a Christian walks into the room, it, it's like sunrise. 
Again, not everybody likes it. Some are going to want to shut the blinds. But there should be about us a very real presence of, of the, the life of Christ that is so distinct that people would look at us in an awkward awe and wonder. How do they rejoice in the midst of this? Let me tell you. Right? Brothers and sisters, if we take heart of this, we understand this right there has never been a better time. It's never been easier to shine brightly. The darker the night, the brighter the light. Well, we need to keep moving. And there's another aspect of this testimony that we bear as lights. We put off grumbling and disputing and we live lives that are blameless and innocent and above reproach. And Paul says we need to speak truth. Look at verse 16. He says we are holding fast the word of life. This, this goes in with the whole bundle. We're to live an exemplary life and we hold fast the word of life. This word hold fast can mean to cling to tightly, to hang on. The word also can mean to hold something out, to hold something forward, to offer And I think in context, that is more likely what Paul has in mind. He's been talking about our testimony before the world, that we shine like lights by the life that we lead. But there's another piece to all of that. It's just not what your life says, but it is what your lips say. And we are holding forth, we are holding out, we are extending to the world the word of life. It's a picture, if you will, of of a mouth that is empty of the corrupt works of complaint and, and, and dispute, but instead it is filled with the word of life. We hold it out. We hold it forth. Our, our life and our doing provides, if you will, a platform for our proclamation. And that is consistent with the overall thrust of Scripture. It's not enough, is it, just to testify by a life. We, we, we are called to employ our tongues in this work. Our voice should be heard. The gospel should be on our lips. And so we shine forth the light and we speak forth the word. So we put away grumbling and disputing to fill our mouths with the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So why do we put away grumbling? For what it says about us, that we are the children of God, for what it says to the world, that it is dark, that it is under judgment, and that there is life in Christ. And then finally, third, for the sake of our mutual joy in suffering, and we'll move through this quickly, for the sake of our mutual joy in suffering for Christ. Here's another one of those so that's. So that, Paul says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. You understand what he is saying. He's looking at the day of Christ again. He did this in chapter 1 and verse 6 where he talked about the fact that God would complete all that he started in us until the day of Christ, Jesus. And then he says it again in verse 10 that he wanted them to approve of all things that are excellent and to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So here he looks forward to that day of Christ. This is not the day of judgment. This is the day of reward. Paul looks out at it and he says, look, I just want to be sure. I want to have reason to rejoice, really, that I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He uses kind of an athletic analogy. I've put in all this work on Christ's behalf and for your good, and I want to see that work produce the fruit that I trust it will by the power of God in you. You understand this again if you just think about your children for two seconds. You've labored, haven't you? Stayed up late nights. You spent a lot of money. You invested a lot in thinking about them and praying for them and disciplining them and raising them up and training them in the word of God and teaching them their math facts. And you have a heart's desire to see that kid flourish. There's a sense in which that's all that really matters to you. 
You would give your life for them. But you want to see all that investment realized in the profit of their life, in the joy of their life. That's Paul with the Philippian church. He is so vested in this ministry. And he was this way, of course, with all the churches. It was the daily concern for the churches that burdened him most. And he's just saying to them, I want to see you Philippians crowned and rewarded and and rejoicing before Christ. To me, that would be the greatest of rewards. That would be the greatest joy. I love what he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 2, 19 and 20. He asks them rhetorically, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming for you are our glory and our joy. Do you see what Paul is saying? The future was never very far away from Paul's thinking. And that'll help you with the grumbling and disputing, by the way. Most grumbling and disputing is because your eyes are fixed here and now. Paul looks out and he sees that day. It's never very far from him. This momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. You see, that motivated Paul. It drove Paul. He had an eye fixed towards heaven where Christ is. That day, brothers and sisters, that day. You've got to keep going to that day. I know this day stinks. I get it. This world will never fulfill what you hope for. But that day will exceed everything you expect. Trust me. And you need to keep doing what Paul does here and launching out. Paul has that heart like the Apostle John. You remember what John said? I have no greater joy than this, that I would hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is the the heart of every true pastor. And Paul says, I want you to put away grumbling and disputing because it demonstrates that you are the children of God. You are blameless and you are innocent and you are above reproach and you shine like the night sky and you are glorious in Christ and I rejoice in that. If you could stand faithful in Christ, my heart will burgeon with joy because I'm looking forward to the day where Christ rewards you and that will be, as as your spiritual father, that will be my greatest day. What a thought. That's why in, in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, look, obey your leaders who are over you in the Lord Let them do this, he says, with what? With joy and not with sorrow. Nothing pleases your shepherds more. Nothing makes the time and the effort and the pouring out more more worthwhile than to see the work of God confirmed in the people of God. It It just motivates more service. And a heart that just longs to see Christ glorified in his people. But that wasn't the end of it for Paul. Look at verse 17. Even if I'm being poured out, he says, as a drink offering. That that was a God-ordained sacrifice that was actually wine that was poured on top of a meat offering. You can find it in Exodus 29, 38 to 41. Paul says he pictures himself like that, that drink offering being poured out on top of the Philippians, if you will, as they give their lives in sacrifice to Christ and he says, even if I'm being poured out, and what he, what he really means by that is, look, even if I'm going to die for this, you remember he was in jail and he was, he was awaiting a judgment that in all likelihood was going to remove his head from his body. And he says, even if it costs me everything, I want you to know my attitude as I serve you, brothers and sisters. My attitude is this, even if this is the end of this life for me, Even if, as a result of my service in your faith, I lose my life, I want you to know something. When you go to my memorial, I want you to know something, Paul says. I want you to know how much joy I had in giving it all for you and for my Savior. Paul is no pseudo-shepherd. 
He's no hireling. He would give everything for the flock. He would incur any cost. He would put in all the work. He would deny himself to whatever extent. He would suffer all that light affliction for the glory of seeing the Philippians' faith strengthened and them shining like lights in the night sky. Heaven can wait, Paul says, as long as your faith is furthered. And if I'm being poured out, in this I rejoice. But that's not the end of it. Don't miss this. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord with him. Look at verse 18. You too, I urge you. Underline this part right here. Rejoice in the same way. He's saying, look, I know. He's saying what he, what he already said to them. He told them back in verse 29 of chapter 1, that they were going to suffer. And he said in verse 30, you're experiencing the same conflict that you saw in me and here in me. In other words, you Philippians are going through the same kind of struggle that I am in this life as the world opposes you, as the evil one works against you. And I want you to know that as we swim upstream together, I want you to adopt the same attitude that I have. It's an attitude of rejoicing in the cost of following Jesus. We will rejoice in our suffering together. And I am telling you that my suffering on your account causes me much joy. And I want you to know that. I want you to rejoice with me. But Philippians, my friends, I'm an apostle, yes, but I'm just a man. And I too am tempted to get down in the mouth. And I need you to share your joy with me. You rejoice in your suffering. And then let me hear of your obedience in the midst of opposition. And let me hear from you how much joy you find in suffering and serving Christ. That my heart might be strengthened. Paul was transparent, wasn't he? Paul needs the mutual encouragement of the church as much as any man. And he needed the Philippian saints to come around him and strengthen him with a joyful report. And brother and sister, can I say to you here this morning, you need the same thing, and so do I. Last week I noted that complaining and disputing are very contagious. And in our complaining, we draw others into the vortex of complaint, and we can all go down that hole real fast. It's also true that joy is contagious and that you can lift a congregation. You can exalt and pick up a brother and sister in Christ as you go through your own suffering but rejoice in the midst of it. Man, do we need that. What a ministry that would be. Who here is the minister of joy? Wouldn't that be great? I hope the Lord gives us many ministers of joy. That is what we are called to do as we serve one another. Brothers and sisters, let us set our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Let us set our minds on all that we have in Christ, not on what we do not have in this life. Let us set our minds on all that awaits us in the future, and may the Lord make us extremely sensitive to a grumbling and complaining and disputing heart. Let us put off anything that obscures the light of Christ in our life or dims that testimony at all. And may we be before the Lord pleasing children, blameless, innocent, above reproach, mouths that are filled with the gospel, not grumbling, not complaining. Let our heads be lifted in confident hope. Let our hearts be buoyant, in an absolutely unflappable joy. These are things I have prayed for us already this morning, that our, our, our heads would be lifted in hope and our hearts buoyant in joy and our mouths filled with gratitude and praise and the gospel extending out the hope of life in Jesus Christ to any and all who are in our midst. And I prayed this morning that each one of us would find 
someone to share the joy of the Lord with. I guess I could sum it up this way, brothers and sisters. May the Lord be honored in the bright constellation that is Foothill Christian Fellowship. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Father, you have set us as lights in the sky. What a gift, what a responsibility, what a joy. And Lord, I do pray that you would lift our heads, that we would be unflappable, that we would be those, Lord, who are distinct, that our attitudes would be glad, that we would be a thankful people, that we would rejoice always in all that you've given to us. Lord, you are ultimately sufficient and there is nothing else and no one else we need, but you are the giver of all good gifts. And Lord, we, we trust you for what we have and we want to receive these things with gratitude in our hearts for all that you've given to us. Foremost of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen and ascended, even now interceding on our behalf and returning for us in the end. Oh Lord, what a day that will be. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored in our lives, by the way we live, by our character, by the things we speak. In your name we pray, amen.